Amen. Well, Psalm 23 is one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible, not just for Christians, but for non-Christians. It's super familiar, and so many people have tried to update it over the years. Here is Psalm 23 for you outdoorsy types. The Lord is my camp guide, so I have everything I need. He lets me frequent clean campsites with running water and electricity. He gives me good sleep and leads me on paths that are marked clearly to the restroom and hot showers. Even though I walk through the valley of mosquitoes, I will not fear, because you give me deet. Your campfire and picnic pavilions, they comfort me. You prepare s'mores and hot dogs in the presence of raccoons, and you fill my Coleman lantern with oil, and my coffee mug overflows. Surely good weather and fun will be with me, and I will stay in the Lord's campground forever. Here is one for the techies among us. The Lord is my computer programmer. I shall not crash. He has installed his software on the hard drive of my heart, and all of his systems are user-friendly. His directory moves me to the right commands for his name's sake, and even though I scroll through a list of files, I fear no viruses, for you are my backup. Your password protects me. You prepare a code before me in the presence of my enemies, and your help is only a keystroke away. Surely good Wi-Fi and bandwidth will follow me all the days of my life, and my file will be merged with yours and saved forever. But sadly, I think this is the most accurate for the 21st century woman. It says, I am my provider, so I shall not be in want. I've stored up high-protein, gluten-free snacks in case the grass is not green in the pasture. I have a big Stanley Cup just in case the waters have dried up. I have a GPS on my device, and I can find the right path on my own. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will have no fear because I have a living trust, my funeral is prepaid, and I own life insurance. I will fear no evil because I have a home security system, and the police could be here in minutes. My accountant and my broker, they comfort me. I have prepared an investment portfolio that will provide me with food on the table even if the economy tanks. I have been anointed with brains and good organizational skills. Surely income and dividends will follow me every month without fail, and I will dwell in my own home, not a nursing one, all the days of my life. Yes, sadly, that is the way most people live today. I put some funny things in, but... Most people think that they can do it all on their own, right? And they are the captain of their fate and the master of their soul. And sadly, when they live that way, they miss out on all the great promises from our good shepherd that we're gonna learn about this summer. Because it's been said, the Lord is my shepherd is written on more tombstones than lives. And that's true. Millions of people have found this psalm to be so precious to them but they've never embraced the reality and the truth behind the words. They want the benefit of the shepherd without the price tag. They want all the good stuff you can give them, but nothing more. And that's why it's important that the first phrase is here. If you don't have Psalm 23 open, would you please open it for me? Because this is the only place I'm going to take you all day. Psalm 23 verse 1 begins with this very powerful phrase. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, that word is actually the most significant in the whole thing. He's not just a shepherd. He is my shepherd. 
With that single syllable, David reminds us of the intimate relationship that we can have with this shepherd. It's because of that word and the profound reality that it represents that the promises in this psalm are real and personal and mine. And I hope that they're yours too. But we, of course, all know that no one is born a Christian, no matter how much we might like to think that's the case because we have loved ones that we want to be saved or how much confusion there might be right outside those doors. We know it's not true. The Bible is very clear that every person is born separate from God because of sin and that Christ either pays for it for us or we pay for it ourselves. But the only way for us to be credited with Christ's righteousness is for God himself to draw us so that we are able to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. And that is when we become sheep of this shepherd in that moment. And then these promises are ours. When that happens, we're like a little boy who comes home from Sunday school whose mom faithfully asks him, what did you learn today? And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. See, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want is truly and should be the heart of a real follower of Christ. He is at the core of who we are, all we want. And sadly, though, us grown-up women don't always live that way, do we? We want the good shepherd and all of his goodies, and then we want a whole lot more as well. I trust that today you will see how good the shepherd is at supplying all you need and, frankly, all you want, too. But there's another element that has to be addressed before we dive in, and that's, again, in the Lord is my shepherd, in that statement. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, at its most basic, shepherd means the guy out in front, the guy who's calling the shots. And uh, that means the job of the sheep is pretty simple. You just follow. But we don't like that. We would like to be the boss of us, frankly. Um, we don't want to fall in behind some leader, some shepherd. But I got to be honest with you, it's the only job description God will take in your life. Shepherd, boss, CEO, bus driver, whatever you want to call it, he's the guy out in front calling the shots, and your job as a sheep is simply to follow him. That's how you get all the goodies that we're going to talk about in Psalm 23. Because if the Lord is your shepherd, I'm here to tell you, and we're going to learn all about it today, you will have everything you need and want if he's your shepherd. How can I be so confident? Well, I can be confident because of the track record of God. There's plenty of places I could um, remind you of in Scripture, but one of them is um, in the book of Deuteronomy, and you don't need to turn there, but it's when Israel gets to the edge of the promised land. And Moses is giving them this big pep talk before they go into the promised land. And he wants to remind them how they got from Egypt to the Jordan River where they're standing in that moment. He reminds them of things like the angel of death passed over you. He reminds them that the Egyptians met them on the way out and handed them all their stuff, all their jewels, all their gold. He reminds them that they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. He reminds them that they got water from a rock and bread from heaven, and that their sandals never wore out. And then in Deuteronomy 2.7, it said something very profound. Moses says, he, that is God, your shepherd, knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. You've lacked nothing. 
And they're talking a million people for 40 years, and they lacked nothing. You see, if you look at all that the Good Shepherd has done for his people over all time, and then you throw into it what he's done for you, we have a trustworthy and good shepherd that we know can supply all that we need and all that we want. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so that makes it much easier to fall in behind him and to follow him when we see what a good and trustworthy shepherd he is. Now we're ready to look at why, if the Lord is your shepherd, you have everything you need, which is our title today. The Lord is your shepherd, you have everything you need. And in Psalm 23, verse 2 and 3, we're going to find three reasons why he's, or ways that he's going to give you everything you need. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Okay, that sounds pleasant enough, poetic, but what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to lead us to green pastures and beside still waters? Well, it means that the first thing that our good shepherd, who's always going to supply what we need, supplies for us is all that we require to have a satisfying life. He's going to re- give us everything we need to have that be the reality for us. Let's write point number one like this. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I need to, number one, enjoy the shepherd's generous provisions. Enjoy the shepherd's generous provision. God supplies all I need for a good and satisfying life as one of his sheep. Now, the text said that he makes them lie down in green pastures. And if you're like me, you're picturing the sheep standing there and the shepherd coming up, putting his hands on their back and making them, forcing them to the ground. That is not it at all. He is trying to provide everything they need and set them up for success so that they can have that moment of lying down in green pastures. See, because what makes a sheep happy, his happiest, his most satisfied is when he's had a big old meal of grass and he's got a big fat tummy and he's sassy and full and he can sit down and chew his cud. That's what a sheep really wants. And the shepherd, a good shepherd, a loving shepherd, is going to set him up in such a way that that's exactly the kind of life he leads, where he's full and he's relaxing and chewing his cud. Now, the problem is, though, that sheep are a little high maintenance. You may have heard that before. They're a little high maintenance and they won't always lie down and everything, until everything is just right. Kind of like Goldilocks, no hot, cold, no hard, soft. It's got to be perfect or the sheep will not lie down and relax. Well, I found at least four reasons sheep won't lie down. The first one is they will refuse to lie down if they're afraid, if they're fearful. They are skittish animals by nature and they have been known to stampede at like almost no provocation at all. And if you really think about sheep and what they're like, you can understand that they they don't have any defense mechanism. They don't have sharp teeth. They can't run fast. They don't have claws. Uh, So they are a little skittish and fearful as animals. So um, what happens is they uh, are scared a lot of the time. But nothing alleviates their fears more than seeing the shepherd right next to them. And that's why a good and loving shepherd goes out and lives among the flock and stands right there in their midst so that they can all see him. Because that alleviates their fears, seeing their shepherd nearby. Well, think about it. We too can be a little skittish. We too can be a little fearful. Even as we look around the landscape, we can be a little bit more afraid than maybe we used to be. And those fears weigh down on us. And the same is true for us as it is for the sheep. And that is that when we see our shepherd nearby, 
it's okay, isn't it? Your fears aren't so bad when you can see him. When our shepherd comes to live right beside us, when we can cast our anxieties on him because he cares about us, when we meditated on truths like Psalm 4.8, which says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. When we meditate on truths like that, the shepherd seems really close, doesn't he? Another reason sheep won't lie down is if there is friction in the flock. You see, every flock has a pecking order where there's, you know, intimidation and bullying and dominance. And what happens is it makes all the other sheep that are being intimidated and bullied feel nervous, right? I mean, it feels like you've got to defend what's yours if there's all this friction and rivalry going on. And it sucks all the joy out of the flock. They are discontent. They're exhausted because they're always trying to be sure that they're not with the bully or they're not, something's not being taken from them. And uh, the solution is exactly the same for, for the sheep in that case, and that is if the good and loving shepherd stands there and lives with them. The shepherd, a good and loving shepherd, lives with them 24-7 every season of the year. Just like when you walk into whatever room your children are playing in, and all of a sudden they're not playing, and it gets louder and louder and louder, and you walk in, what happens? All of a sudden the yelling goes away, and the sibling rivalries disappear because you're there. And they know they're going to not have a good response from mom or grandma or whatever when they're going rah, 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 at each other when there's friction. It falls away when the mom or grandma shows up, right? Same with the sheep. Same with us, for that matter. This one might hit a little close to home because even Christian women struggle with trying to one-up each other. We want to have better homes. We want to have better lives. We want to have better situations. So we compare husbands, bodies, vacations, children, ministry posts, we're always trying to compete with one another. Well, when that happens, all the joy gets sucked out of our flock too. And it's exhausting to compare ourselves to one another. But we're not the only ones who've had this problem. If you think back to the night that Jesus was arrested, he's having his last supper, his last dinner with the disciples, and literally he's breaking loaves of bread in front of them and explaining to him how I'm going to break my body to pay for your sin. And he's pouring the wine and he's saying, my blood will be spilled out for you. And what are the disciples doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. Wow. It must have been very disappointing to Jesus. I'm going to do this huge thing for you. And all you're worried about is each other and comparing yourself with each other. So see, we're, we're not the only ones. They had that problem too. And he turned to them in that time and he basically said, don't worry about things like that. I want you to serve people. In fact, I want you to serve them so much you get down on your hands and knees, just like I did to wash your feet. I want you to serve others like that instead of worrying about how you stack up to everybody else. When we look to him, it does not matter what others have, what they do, and then all those petty skirmishes will fall away from us in our hearts. Okay, so we've looked at fear and friction. Another thing, another blight that sheep face is lies. And I'm going to put it in the category of irritants. Irritants. Just if you've, if you've ever seen um, farm animals in the summer, I have, you will see that they're covered with flies. That's what happens to a sheep in the summertime. They just have flies all over their body, all over their face, all over their body. So do cows, horses, pigs. Okay. I remember being a little kid and driving across country with my dad, and he took us to this distant relative who had a big old dairy farm. 
And uh, the two things I remember about that, a big dairy farm with rows and rows of cows hooked up to machines. And I remember two things about that. Fresh milk. Okay, I don't know what you're picturing about fresh milk. <sighs> fresh milk is disgusting. Even if you, yeah, it's still disgusting. It's hot. Ugh, it's gross. Anyway, and the second thing I remember is all the flies. There was about a gazillion flies everywhere on everyone and everything. It's irritating. The sheep are irritated by the flies. They can't stand still. They're shaking their head. They're stomping their feet. They're rubbing up against bushes, right? Because you can't stand the flies. They're so irritating. Well, a good and loving shepherd, he will mix up a big old batch of insect repellent and he'll rub it all over the sheep's body so that that irritant will disappear. And we too have irritants, annoyances, don't we? And we call out to our shepherd. We pray to him. We tell him what's bugging us, right? And he will provide his solution. Whatever it is, something we need to do, a scripture we need to go to, a person we need to get it right with, whatever. And he helps us through our irritants as well. With his love and attention, we will find rest, even if there's flies buzzing around. And the perfect example of peace, I think, this kind of peace, even from irritants and fears and all of the stuff we've talked about so far is, is Peter in Acts 12. Um, he's come a long way since the Last Supper, the night he denied Christ three times. In Acts 12, he is a totally different guy. Acts 12 is when James, the brother of John, had already been arrested, and King Herod had beheaded him. And we read that like, oh, it's no big deal, but he took a sword or a blade. I don't know, he put his head down on a block and he cut it off. And here's Peter, who has now been snatched up, because Herod was like, aha, that went well. Let me get the leader in here, and I'll do the same thing to him, blade across the neck. Well, he's laying there the night before he's to be executed. And verse 6 tells us he's chained between two soldiers at that moment. And I know you know what he was doing. Was he crying? Was he weeping? Did he have insomnia? He was flipping back and forth? No, he was sleeping and he was about to face whatever the blade was, an execution this next morning. And he was sleeping. He wasn't fretting or freaking out. He was completely at rest. This was his shepherd's plan. It didn't matter what the plan was, he was going to be at rest with it. Whoa. Okay, fear, friction, and irritants. The last thing that sheep will not lay down if it's happening to them is if they're hungry. If they're hungry. Uh, if their bellies are growling, okay, if they don't have enough to eat. If they don't have enough to eat, they're going to be an easy target for predators and actually for disease. So the most important job that a shepherd has really is to make sure that the sheep have enough green pasture to eat. He actually spends most of his life trying to figure out how his flock is going to get enough to eat. He researches, he travels around, he tries to find the right place to take them down the path to get them to the big good pasture land. And in fact, if, the, if there is no good pasture land, he will make it himself. He will start digging up all the rocks in a field. He'll pull out all the bushes, the sticks, and all the stuff. He'll start making furrows in the ground. He'll plant seeds. He'll take care of those little seedlings. He'll irrigate them so that he can actually grow stuff that will sustain his flock and give them what they need. He will go to all that work just to make sure that his sheep have the best 
optimum situation so they can lie down and chew their cud after they have a big meal. And, you know, we too need nourishment, physical nourishment even. But Matthew 6, among other places in our Bibles, talks all about if we will seek him and his kingdom, he will give us food, shelter, clothing. In that text, Jesus says, our Father knows what you need, and we can trust him for it. Even if you don't know where your mortgage payment is going, going to come from, you have to trust God. And I'm not saying that God won't, in his wisdom, say to you, yeah, you need to sell the second car and get another job. He might. That might be how you get the mortgage payment. But we have to trust him, even to provide, you know, stuff in your pantry. You're going to have enough to have enough calories to sustain your body. We probably have way too many calories to sustain our bodies, right? We could probably do with the pantry being half full. God's going to give you all you need. And of course, he's also going to provide spiritual nourishment. You're here. He's provided you a great church, and he's provided you amazing, perfect word. That book that sits on the table right next to you provides you with all the spiritual nourishment, as well as an army of godly women to come alongside you and help you grow and have nourishment spiritually. He will give you wisdom, so soak up every opportunity you have to listen to it, learn from it. It will strengthen you, and it will give you rest. Okay, so our shepherd provides all we need in the way of sustenance, but there is more in this point. Verse 2 says, he leads me beside still waters. Okay, well, apart from the green pastures, in order to get the sheep to lay down full and, and chew his cud, he needs to have enough fresh water to drink. It obviously is a need for sheep and, of course, for us too, but a good shepherd knows that well-watered sheep are going to be strong sheep. And they need strong sheep in order to stand up against their, um, you know, foes. The thing about sheep is, though, <clears throat> I don't care how big a body of water it is or how clean that water is, a sheep will never go into water if it's moving. They just won't. They somehow innately know, I don't know God, how God created their brains, but they know that they can't walk into a river and drink. They know that their, their coats are wool, right? They know that their wool coats will be all dragged down with the water. They're going to slip down in the water and potentially be drowned and taken off. So they won't walk into water if it's running. What does a good and loving shepherd do then? What if the only body of water he can find to sustain his flock is running? Then a good and loving shepherd will rock right out into that river. He'll pull up rocks, boulders, logs, and bush, pieces of bushes, and he'll make a dam. And he'll dam off a little tiny area in the river. And when the sheep see that there's a still portion of water, those sheep will then feel bold, courageous enough to walk out into that still water and drink to their heart's content and have everything they need when it comes to water and sustenance there. They will be satisfied. He will give them a quiet and safe place. Sometimes we have tumultuous waters surrounding us too, don't we? We live in a chaotic world and we have chaotic lives. We're uneasy and we're scared. I can promise you that your good shepherd who loves you will also provide you with a quiet place of rest. If I could bring up all the people on the prayer chain right now, some of you have been on it and you know this anyway, even without having lived through something like that. I bet they could all tell you their diagnosis or their situation, but you know what else they would all tell you? 
if the Lord is their shepherd, they would all tell you how God has met their need, how God has taken them to a place of quiet and rest and peace in him. No matter what was happening around them, they felt safe and protected in that quiet place in the midst of the chaos. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 tells us that we should come to Jesus if we labor or are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. So even if the watchers rage around you, you are safe in the oasis that Jesus can provide for you. I didn't say he's going to calm every rapid or take away every challenge. I said he will provide you with a place of rest in the midst of it, because that's what he promises. The good shepherd will provide whatever a sheep needs for a peaceful and satisfied life. A verse that sums this all up, this whole point, is Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. We must trust in our shepherd. He will generously supply all you need. All right, well, we've already seen that sheep present a number of challenges to their shepherd. Um, We've talked about a lot of them, but probably the one that's most concerning to the shepherd is the sheep's tendency to wander away. Now, sometimes they do it full-on rebelliously, and other times it's simply because of carelessness. You know, that sheep sees that beautiful big clump of grass right there, and he bends his head down and he chews it up. And then the sheep doesn't even lift his head. He just sees out of the corner of his eye, there's another one over there. So he goes over there, and he chews that one up, And then he doesn't lift his head. He just looks over there and he sees another. Oh, wait, there's one over there. And pretty soon, by doing that, sheep start to wander away from the rest of the flock. It's not even on purpose. It's just they're careless. They're not thinking. Obviously, they're not thinking. And they wander away from the flock just like that. Well, the problem is you don't want to be out there alone very long, particularly if you're a sheep, but even if you're a person. Being isolated makes them really a juicy morsel for any kind of enemy that might wander along, whether that's the two-legged variety or the four-legged. Being alone and being isolated is really bad news for the sheep. It's dangerous. They shouldn't even be alone, not just because of enemies, but also because of the rugged terrain that often they're traveling on, especially at night. Cliffs and ravines, they can fall to their deaths without a good shepherd nearby. They should not be alone. Because of this, a loving shepherd, a good shepherd, is hypervigilant about counting his sheep, and he does it every single day. When they come into wherever they're sleeping that night, the pen or the little corral that he's made out on the pasture lands, he's going to have them cross underneath their rod and a staff, and he's going to count them, you know, 27, 28, 94, 95, 147, 148. He counts them every night and makes sure that he has all that he needs, all that he has responsibility for. And in Luke 15, there's a story about Jesus doing that. And it says, the shepherd, if the shepherd finds one of them missing, he will leave all the rest and he will rush out to find the one that is not there because he wants to restore it and he wants to bring it back to the flock. Hence the words in Psalm 23:3, he restores my soul. When a good shepherd notices the sheep aren't there, he will quickly retrace his steps and go out looking for him and bring him back. So point number two is because because the Lord is my shepherd, I need to, number two, embrace the shepherd's complete forgiveness. 
when I have wandered off and gotten into trouble, my loving shepherd will always come looking for me. We've looked at a lot of dangers that the sheep face, but probably one of the worst is the fate of being what they call cast down. Now, cast down happens when that fat, sassy sheep has eaten his fill of grass, and frankly, he's looking for a place to go and chew his cud. So that sheep is wandering around looking for a, a, a depression in the grass because he needs a place to put his big fat belly, right? So he's looking for that, and he's walking around trying to find that depression. And if you've ever gone to the beach in the summer, do you understand why he's looking for that? Yes, because I don't care what size you are, no one wants to be squished, right? So what do you do? You brush the grass around, the sand around with your foot, you might do it with your hands, because you want to make it fit your whatever you are whoever you are, you want to make it fit so you can be nice and comfortable and ready to chill when you're lying on your stomach at the beach. It's exactly what the sheep is looking for. And when he does that, he finds that little depression. He sits down. He's like, ah. He starts to relax, you know, maybe rolls his neck a little. I don't know what he does. But he starts to relax a little bit. And the trouble is when he relaxes a little bit, ah, his center of gravity shifts. And it happens to sheep a lot. Center of gravity shifts, and all of a sudden, he rolls over, and he's upside down. Ha! Okay, that, that picture is what it means to be cast down. Now the sheep is upside down, frantically, pedaling his feet. He cannot get himself turned over, not without the help of a good shepherd. You don't want to wander away. You don't want to have the fate of being cast down, because if the shepherd doesn't find you, he won't survive. In... Um, it has to be found in, the, in hours in the summertime or days in the wintertime or the sheep will die panicked like that upside down. There literally is no hope for them to turn over. And what happens is gases begin to build up in their extremities and cuts off the circulation. And they're panicked and they, there's literally no hope for that sheep. So it's important for the shepherd to go running out looking for him, right? So the shepherd will be calling out and then he'll be trying to listen for his little pathetic bleeding voice. And then he even will look to the sky and see, are there buzzards? You know, are they buzzards gathering over there? Maybe there's a cast-down sheep over there. But he's going to be frantically searching for his sheep. And it's a heartbreaking sight when he sees that cast-down sheep all panicked, stranded, legs in the air. He will run to that sheep. He will gently roll them over and begin massaging their legs, breaking up the gases that are building up now in their body, whispering in the sheep's ear, it's okay, I've got you, I'm here. You're going to be all right. I made it in time. I love you. And he's going to take care of that cast-down sheep. He's going to make sure the cast-down sheep gets um, the strength that he needs. So at first, he might, you know, have the cast-down sheep lean on him a bit while they walk. I just lean on me, you know, kind of like putting your arm around him, except they're down here. And then... As the sheep gets stronger, maybe, okay, their legs are getting a little strong, but now I still want you to stick really close to me at first because you were cast down and you're a little weak. Let's make sure you stick close to me. And slowly but surely, that shepherd, that loving shepherd will help that cast down sheep that wandered and got into trouble and got their life turned upside down and he will restore them and keep them close until they're strong again. 
That's what a good shepherd does. And he rejoices that it wasn't too late this time. Now, I think we might feel like sheep in this case. Occasionally, we might wander off. You bet. Sometimes we do, and we can get hopelessly turned upside down. Whether it was on purpose or on accident, it can happen even to us. And praise God, we have a shepherd who is quick to run to us and restore us to the flock and forgive us when we cry out to him. Now, some of us would like to think that I'm strong. I can make it on my own. Like that 21st century woman, I am my provider. We identify with her, and we think this could never happen to us. Woo-wee. I would contend that we, like sheep, can still get ourselves in a bunch of trouble, even if we're fairly mature in the Lord, and that we are a disaster waiting to happen because we, too, have enemies, enemies that stand there and wait and watch for us to stumble so they can swoop in, maybe give Jesus Christ a black eye at the same time. That would be good. They'd love that. So they're going to be looking for people, Christian people, who have wandered away from the flock so they can pounce on them. We don't want to be isolated from godly people. We don't want to be vulnerable to temptation. And sometimes we will face difficulties that without the help of the good shepherd, we will never be able to navigate our way out of. We have to have his help. We have to have him whisper to us, massage our hearts, strengthen us, and get us back on our feet again and back with the flock and restore us. Well, I got to share one warning from scripture about this. It's a familiar passage as all of them have been today, but first... Corinthians 10, 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Ladies, we have to constantly be looking for the shepherd. When he moves, we move. When he stays, we stay. We stay within arm's length of him and this church so that we don't get knocked down, swooped in by an unknown predator or dangerous element that's lurking nearby. Woe to the woman who finds herself cast down and doesn't have the good shepherd there to help her turn right side up. And don't forget who penned the words, he restores my soul. King David, right? Man after God's own heart. Yes. But also the poster child for deliberate and willful sin. He not only committed all that sin, I don't even call it one sin. He committed a whole bunch of sins at that time in his life. Not only did he commit all those sins, but he succeeded in covering it up for almost a year until God in his providence sent Nathan to restore David's soul and bring him back to the Lord and offer him forgiveness. If God reveals sin to you, even today, this week, whatever it is, you need to cry out like David did. And another famous psalm was written by David, and that's Psalm 51, 1 to 3. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Cry out to God even from that cast down place and you will find forgiveness if the Lord is your shepherd. Confess your sin and he will give you a free pardon today because of Jesus Christ. Now there's another favorite psalm of a lot of us and that is Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 in verse 12 tells us something interesting and very encouraging. It says, when we ask God to forgive our sins, that he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Remember that? But but how far is that? What does that mean? We know it's like poetic, but what, what does it mean? Okay, well, imagine a globe in your mind, 
we're in North America, right? Geography lesson, in case you didn't remember that. We're in North America, one of the continents. Okay, and you're going to go north. Just pretend you're going north. When you get to the top of the globe, you hit the North Pole, and what happens? What direction are you going now? South. Wait a minute. And then you get to the bottom, you're at the South Pole, and then you keep going, and where do you, you start going north again? Wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. Okay, but now let's think about you're in North America, and you're now you're going to go east. Okay, my east is this way, so your east is this way. Okay, east, you're going to go east. You got through Blythe, Utah, Colorado, Kentucky, New York, the Atlantic Ocean, and you're still going, you're still going east. When do you start going west? When do you start going west? East, east, east. You're, you're still traveling east because east never meets west. It can't be measured. He separates your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. We have a good shepherd who restores our soul and forgives us. What a blessing that is. Whew. Got nothing else today. That was a pretty cool blessing. But there's more. There's one more. And there's no better time for the last phrase that we're going to look at today than right now, when we think about our ability to wander off and be cast down. Psalm 23.3 said, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness or right paths. Those right paths take me to a life of abundance and safety. They're not always the easiest. They're not always the quickest. But when we follow them, we always end up in the right place. They're the right paths to take. So point number three is going to be because the Lord is my shepherd, I need to, number three, follow the shepherd's perfect directions. Follow the shepherd's perfect directions. Now, you may already know this, but sheep are creatures of habit. They have been known to pass over the same path again and again and again and make ruts in the dirt because they will not go another way, ever. They're so stuck with it, creatures of habit. Um, and some of them have grazed in one place so long, there used to be a beautiful, juicy thing of grass there, but they chew it down to a nub, and sheep are so stubborn, they will keep going to the point where they're just eating dirt. And they need a good and loving shepherd to come along, basically kick them a little bit, get those stubborn sheep to go someplace else and down a new path with good, wholesome food, not dirt, okay? Well, he knows sometimes that he has to break ground to guide these stubborn sheep. Now, of course, we know people like that. I mean, you know, those people are like that, right? Not us. We're never like that. Well, <clears throat> sometimes we like to do things the way we've always done them before because they work for us, right? Well, we can also be creatures of habit and go down paths that aren't necessarily God's right path for us. We need to be ready to give up any way of thinking or acting or doing that might not end up being God's good path. We can't hang on to them just because it's how we've always done it or because we think it's right or because the social influencers tell us it is. We have to go down the right paths, which means God needs free reign in your life. He needs free reign in your life, whether it's how you run your home, what programs you watch, or how you parent. You need to give God free reign in your life. You need to remember the day you became one of his sheep, when you surrendered your life to follow him. You told him you would follow him. You told him that day you would do whatever he asked. 
And now he's got good paths for you, which, you know, you got a little stubborn heart, has to go, okay, I'll take his good path, even if it's not what I've always done before. We like to talk about it. We sing songs about it. But sometimes I wonder if we actually live it. Not when we're here at church. Easy to say, do you believe you should go down God's right path? Check. Yes. Everybody's going to say that here. Everybody's going to say that at small group. But do you live that six hours from now? How about two days from now? Right? Well, I heard of a Christian organization that I thought got it right. They had a logo, and this was way back in the early 1900s, long, long time ago. It was the Christian Missions Organization, and on their logo, there was a picture of an ox right in the middle, an ox, you know, a big, fat farm animal that helps plow the field, okay? And on one side of the ox, there was an altar, you know, where they give sacrifices to the Lord at the temple. That's what I mean by the altar. And then on the other side of the ox, there was a plow, okay? And underneath it, it said, ready for either, it was a missions organization, a Christian mission organization that said, I'm ready to be sacrificed on the altar to give my all to die for Christ. Or I am ready to work really hard and dig a field and just keep working laboriously for whatever I have left. I love that. If Jesus is your shepherd, we have to do what he says. We call it anything, any place, any time. But I got another question for you. Are you ready for the altar or the plow? So if you're going to take God's good path, it could be either of those. Well, the path a sheep takes is of critical importance. If you were to go to the deserts of Israel right now, you would see it for yourself. Some of the paths are lined with enemies, and they're literally going to be dead meat if they take that path. Some paths look beautiful, but don't go anywhere. And some paths are far too dangerous. There's cliffs and ravines, and I mean, without the help of a shepherd, the sheep are just going to be lost causes. So it does matter which path you take. When I read Pilgrim's Progress to my kids when they were little, I remember one image that's always stuck out to me, and it was the image of Christian and Hopeful on their way to the celestial city. And they're taking a very steep mountain path that's taking them to the celestial city. And they're, hug, they're chugging up the, they're, they're sweating, they're gross, they're yucky, and they're going up that path. And they happen to look down at the valley, and they see that there's another path to the celestial city, except this path is meandering on flat ground and it's by a beautiful meadow. And they're like, oh, look at that path. It goes to Celestial City. We don't need to take this path. This one's too hard. Let's go take the easy one. Now, the only problem is they didn't know that the giant despair lived on the easy path. And pretty soon, they found themselves locked up in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And they were beaten without mercy by the giant. And they're laying there bloodied and broken. And what do they do? They call out to God. And they say, God, forgive us, forgive us. And when they call out to God and confess their sin, all of a sudden they discover the key to the prison door and they open themselves, they open it up and they head off to the celestial city again. Now, these guys were not overtly rebellious. What did they do wrong? They took the easy path, not the path God had told them to take. We can be tempted to do that too. It's a lot easier to take the comfortable road but sadly, we know it's true when we're comfortable. That's when our eyes go off the shepherd and we start to depend on us when things are easy. We don't need him when it's easy and we forget he's there. And in that moment of pride, we are the most susceptible to temptation. So take the path God leads you down, no matter how hard it might be. Now, I know it sounds pretty idyllic when you're sitting at 
women's Bible study, but let's think about our willingness to take God's path when it might be a little harder. I've got some questions for you. Are you willing to take God's path when your husband wants to do something that you don't want to? Okay, now I'm not talking something immoral. I'm saying when he says to you, honey, we really can't afford to remodel the bathroom right now, and you are like adamant, yes, we can, it's time. Uh, No, it isn't. Or when he says, oh, I think we should let the kids stay up tonight. What? Right? Well, it's, it's a lot harder to take God's perfect path in that moment in time. But we need to be willing to take God's path. Are you willing to take God's path when he says that you should faithfully and consistently correct your children and give them painful consequences for their actions? You should be, even though it's inconvenient, or the grandparents are there, or you're at the grocery store, or it's just about what they're eating. I know they're rebelling. I know they're not doing what I say, but it's just, I want peace. Got to be willing to follow God's paths. Are you willing to follow God's path when it means forgiving someone who's hurt you? Someone who's hurt you sometimes bad, or sometimes over and over and over again. Are you willing to release that debt with your palms down? right? We like to release a debt like this where we can just go, well, I forgive you. No, I don't. I forgive you. No, I don't, right? But releasing a debt that someone has against us is forgiving them and doing this and saying, I forgive you and I won't grab it back. That debt is gone. We know what God's path is for that. It's to forgive. Are you willing to take God's path if it means you have to be out another night to serve? Bible's very clear. Every person that is a sheep of God's flock has been given a gift of God that you're supposed to use in this place to do good to the body of Christ. What you're supposed to do. It might mean you have to have one less night of watching TV or scrolling social media. Are you willing? Are you willing to take God's path if it means that you're supposed to love your husband first before your children? I won't ask you how many of you had a date night this week, and there's, okay, date night's not in the Bible, but the concept of putting your husband first for even a couple hours of your week where he's first over you, over the kids, over the job. Don't even get me started on intimacy, which is also commanded in the Bible. Okay, are you willing to take God's path? How about if you don't get the husband you've been asking for, or the kid, or the promotion, or the college acceptance, or the bank account, or the home? Or the health diagnosis. You've been praying for that for a long time and you didn't get what you asked for. Are you still willing to follow God's good path? Or have you gotten bitter, frustrated, disgruntled, angry at God? That's not his best path for you. Far from it. God's paths can be difficult, but they are best and they take us to the best place. We have to be willing to do them. Now, I know many of you, just like I, have tried to follow God's good path. And frankly, it didn't work out. And you just failed. I mean, like you tried it, you did it for a while, and then you just blew up, and you just didn't do it anymore. Well, I got another familiar passage, a promise for you. 2 Peter 1, 3 promises that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What that means is that with his help and his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature, we can do this. We are not alone, and we can take the good path because Guess what? Even this psalm tells us, because he's with us. 
The phrase we just looked at was that he leads us in paths of righteousness. Did you notice that? He leads us. That means you're not alone as you're seeking God's path. God will be right there with you. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, once said, he who is humble will always have God as his guide. Hmm, powerful. He will lead you down the good path. If God says to do it, he will do it, which means if he wants you to follow your husband's lead, discipline your kids, forgive that person, or trust him when he doesn't answer the prayers you want, you can do it. Now, if God is our good shepherd, um, then he's always going to give us his direction. And the primary way that you get his direction is that book that you have on the table next to you or on your device. That's the primary way we know what God wants us to do, and it's our compass, right, here at Compass Bible Church. So I have two to-do things for you to get that Bible and that perfect direction into your life. Two, A, B. A, B, it's right there on the outline for you. The first one is found in 2 Timothy 2.15, another familiar one. That's the Awana verse, but here's what it says. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. Do your best, okay? That takes us to letter A, which is work to know God's word better. Work to know God's word better. Do your best. This is gonna take effort and hard work to know what God's good paths are. We don't want you to guess at what God's good path is. We want you to know you can know if you work hard to study that book. And uh, in the summertime, we have this weird thing because all of a sudden we're not studying the Bible like we were during women's Bible study all year. All of a sudden you have all this, what do I do? Thoughts. And where should I study? Well, there's a lot of things you could do to study the Bible in the summertime. One is maybe there's a book that you've always wanted to study, and we just haven't happened to gotten it to it in women's Bible study. Well, how about you go and you buy a study? You buy a study on that, a Bible study on that book, and you start doing it. Or you tan it. And if you don't know what tanning is, you need to back up and do partners, because partners will teach you what tanning is. You tan that book, which is you go passage by passage, and you study it every day, and you figure out what, what did it mean then? What does it always mean? What's the timeless principle from this passage? And what do I do now? How can I apply this? You pick a book that you've been wanting to study, or maybe some weird stuff happens in the DBR, which happens a lot, right? You're like, whoa, yes, weird stuff sometimes. How about if you study some of that, or you, you take that and you take a chunk, and you just try to learn in Second Chronicles, if that's, I mean, we know that's where we are, right? I mean, today, weren't you just like, oh, come on. Why did you leave the, the, the mentor? Jehoiada was your mentor. And then he dies, and you're just a loser. What happened to you, right? That's what I was thinking. Stop it, stop it. Listen to your mentors and stick with them. Um, there's so many good things in our DBR you could be studying. I actually have a note on my phone. I'm not perfect. I really am not. You can ask anybody in my family. And occasionally... Things don't work out perfectly. And like, I skipped the questions on Colossians lesson nine and maybe didn't quite finish lesson 12 or uh, I keep track of that. And then it's summer and I can go back and do all those things that I just had a bad week and it didn't all work out perfectly. I also spend a few days every week going over the sermon that my husband preaches right here. I spend two days thoroughly going over my notes and then another day doing the questions. That's three days of Bible study that I go through every week. So I even keep track of those. Oops, missed that one. Whoops, missed that one. 
So I keep track of those and go back. There's lots of different things you can do to study in the summer. Now, the second to-do is found from another familiar passage, James 1.22. This is the one that says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And letter B is practice God's principles every day. Practice God's principles every day. It's not enough to just know what he says. We have to actually do what he says. I don't want you to be like second grade Carlen. Second grade Carlen was seven years old, and I can remember the guy, I can remember the place, I can remember the room, and when I drive by it, I know exactly that was the building it took place in, where I had piano lessons. But you know what? I can't do it. And you know why I can't do it? Because I never practiced. I never practiced. So therefore, I cannot replace Scarlett or Bethany or anybody else who plays piano. I can't. Big failure happened because I never practiced. And my mom got tired of paying for it after two years when I wasn't practicing. You keep skills that you practice, and it's true in your spiritual life too. You keep skills and habits that you practice. I tell you all the time to invest in Post-it notes. They're great for shopping lists and prayer requests and memory verses. They're also great for application. Even from this message right here, Write one post-it note, and I usually write copies of it so that I put it in different places in my life. Um, if you need to write it in code because you don't want your children to know what you're applying, that's okay. Write it in code. I'm actually planning on going home and writing the number 10, and I'll never tell you what it means. But I'm going to write it, and I'm going to put it in a few places in my life because it's something that I need to apply. And I've got that number 10 that reminds me exactly what I should be doing. It's about prayer. It's not a big secret. Anyway, another thing you could do is how about let's visit, revisit uh, retreat. You know, we go to retreat every year, and two days later you head back to Bible study. You got all your questions and your small groups, and there you are. Do you remember we even studied the fruit of the Spirit? We studied love, joy, and peace. How's that going? Your, your life is transformed now. You've been practicing it every week. And you've got love, joy, and peace just oozing out of you, right? You know, we learned that you should love others in this room like Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. Not for the kids who live down the hall from you, for the people that are here. How's that going? Are you looking out for the interests of others? Are you laying down your life for them? How about rejoicing? We had a whole message on joy that we should rejoice always. Is joy your default mode? So you're just oozing over with thanksgiving to the Lord for everything he's doing for you. And if I asked your husband and your children, if the thermostat at your house is set to joy, because mom is joyful, they would go, oh yes, she is applying that message. She's a different woman because of retreat. Or what about peace? We talked about peace with God, being holy, doing the right path. And we talked about making short accounts with him. We talked about being at peace with each other and not avoiding going across the room over there because she might see you and she irritates you and you just want to stay away from her or forgiving her. And we also talked about peace in our hearts, that we're not anxious and worried and concerned about our children out there in the big bad world because God doesn't know where they are. You know that, right? He lost track of them. No, he didn't. We're supposed to have peace in our hearts and not worry whether it's my example was having people over to your house 
or your children or your next paycheck. You're supposed to trust God. Okay, so guess what? It's summer. You don't have women's Bible study questions to do. So you can go back and you can re-listen to the retreat messages. And you can do your quiet time questions again. And you can start putting up post-it notes of application all over your house of how you're going to apply. How about Psalm 23 and the retreat messages? You got all summer to do it. It's good. Well, sometimes flocks commingle, and it seems impossible that you would ever be able to separate them again. How do we know which sheep belongs to which shepherd? But because we're not shepherds, we don't get it, but all the shepherds would be chuckling at us because really all the shepherd has to do is walk out in that flock and call, and every one of his sheep will go like this and lift their head, look at him, and follow after him, and they'll split that whole flock apart because he hears, the sheep hears the voice of his shepherd and follows after him. It reminds me of John 10, 3 to 5. Jesus said this, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and he calls his sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought them out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So what about you? Do you know his voice? And when he calls, are you quick to follow? We need to be following the shepherd's perfect directions. Now, one day, there was a man out on the ocean, and he was surfing, and it was actually kind of a quiet day. There was no one on the beach except a big, big man doing taekwondo. I don't know how it works, but he was standing there doing that, practicing that, and all of a sudden, he's sitting, this man is sitting out on a wave, I mean, not a wave, on a surfboard, and all of a sudden, a t- teeny tiny boy on a teeny tiny surfboard came up next to him and started a conversation. So they were chatting there, and the man asked the boy, what's your name? He found out his name was Shane, and he said, hey, Shane, how many years have you been surfing? He said, seven. He said, how old are you, Shane? He said, eight. He's like, whoa, okay. And they continued having this conversation, and at one point, the man said, so how did you get here? And he said, my dad brought me, and he pointed to the big guy doing taekwondo back on the beach, and the man waved at him and said, hi, son, hi, son. And the surfer immediately realized why Shane felt so at home in the ocean. It wasn't because of his skill. It wasn't because of his experience. It was because he wasn't alone. And I'm here to promise you that if the Lord is your shepherd, you are not alone either. If the Lord is your shepherd, you have everything you need and, frankly, everything you should want as well. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you for the precious picture and that you are our shepherd if we have turned to you and begun to follow you. I'm so thankful for that, and I'm thankful for that reality in all my sisters' lives here. And God, of course, I want to pray for those who might not be there yet. I do pray for them, even as they think about the truth that I shared at the beginning and that no one is born a Christian and that to be a Christian, you have to follow him. Those are two really important truths that they need to grapple with. Please help them to do that and not fake it anymore, but make sure that you are their shepherd. And God, I pray for the rest of us that we would realize how good we have it. I know we want to be the boss of us, but we have it so good. You are a loving and kind shepherd who gives us all that we need, who always forgives us, and who tells us the right paths to go. You You even give us the power to go down the right paths. You've given us everything to succeed in this life and have a good and abundant life. 
Thank you so much for that, God. I pray that we would follow you more closely. And I pray for our small groups right now to be super profitable. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.